what better place is there than Paris, the city of light, for immersing yourself in Impressionist art? Well, except perhaps the watery gardens of Claude Monet's home in nearby Giverny. Every time I'm, I'm visiting Giverny, I feel like if I'm walking through one of his paintings. Coming up on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll explore Impressionist art around Paris. We'll also cruise the busy Bosporus in Istanbul. We'll sail upstream for a waterfront view of some of the most expensive homes in the world. As you continue, you'll begin to see the beautiful waterfront mansions, which look like pearls. And we'll explore the scenic Adriatic coast of Croatia, where a city like Split lays history out before you. Medieval Romanesque churches, the Venetian Gothic windows and the winged lion of St. Mark's. And then you even get Art Nouveau from the Habsburg Times, so you don't have to even move a pace and you see it all right there. There's a beautiful place for you in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. It was a very different way of looking at the world. When the artists we now call Impressionists started to experiment with brush strokes and color combinations to capture the way light moves around outdoors. The paintings we see as classics today were panned by critics of their time. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll explore the sites and venues for appreciating Impressionist art in and around Paris. We'll also explore the abundant possibilities for enjoying spectacular scenery, vibrant history, and delicious food along the Adriatic coast of Croatia and Slovenia. The turning and busy waterway that marks the borders of Europe and Asia provides an evocative venue for viewing the massive city of Istanbul from the vantage point enjoyed by sailors for hundreds of years. It's not only a major international shipping channel, it's also the lifeblood of Istanbul. To help us explore the Bosporus, we're joined by Istanbul-based tour guide Yaren Turkoglu. Yaren, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. The Bosporus is a very busy strait. What does it mean to a Turk, the, the Bosporus, when you look out and you see all of that traffic? The Bosporus is one of the most precious places for Turks in the whole country, not only in Istanbul. It's very prestigious to live there. The Bosporus does not only separate Europe from Asia, it also unites Europe to Asia. So it's very important for us. And one of our favorite things to do with my son in my city is we sometimes drive to Eminönü where the Spice Bazaar is located. We park our car there, so we just catch a commuter ferry or maybe a Bosphorus ferry. And while we are on the boat, I just ask my son, while we cruise, would you like to face Asia or would you like to face Europe? So this is one of the many things which makes Istanbul one of the greatest cities in the world. You know, you can f- cruise by facing Asia or by just facing Europe. So you went down to the spice market, and when you go to the spice market, you're right there in the thriving heart where the Golden Horn Definitely. hits the Bosporus. And you've got, the natural I don't know, harbor. there must be a million people every day that come across commuting from Asia to Europe, yes. across because Istanbul's got 20 million people and mm-hmm. several million live in Asia. And uh, when we think of the Bosporus, it's about 20 miles long. It connects the Black Sea in the north with the Sea of Marmara and then eventually the Mediterranean. Aegean and the Mediterranean. So it's a very strategic body of water because it's the all of the countries around the Black Sea. It's their only access to the Mediterranean. Yes. And then you've got all this shipping, this uh, oceanic shipping that's coming through uh, across Istanbul to get up to the Black Sea. And uh, they park. There must be 500 ships out there sometimes. Yes, it's quite a scene. Tell me about that scene. What do you see? It's, it's amazing, actually. Sometimes, just like the traffic in Istanbul, you see a traffic of boats or tankers or, you know, freight ships. So it's amazing, actually. Sometimes if the weather conditions are not right, sometimes they have to wait for days. And you see ships going to Russia, to Romania, to Bulgaria. Yes, it's the only outlet the Ukraine, for Russia Georgia, to the so warmer much. seas, yes. Now, there's a sacred inheritance there. It goes way back. Like you said, it connects East and West as well as separates East and West. How do you enjoy it as a tourist? What what should we do to appreciate the Bosporus? I think one of the nicest things to do on the Bosporus is just to go to a little neighborhood or just a village near the Black Sea. Just find a little tea house or a coffee house. You know, you can have a Turkish coffee and just sit there with the locals and enjoy the ships passing by. I so think You can take a, one of the boats that work like city buses that go up the Bosporus and they stop at different towns. Definitely, Get you off can. at any town. And there are also public buses, you know, if you want to do that, you can also do that. So it's one of the nicest things to do. And just grab a simit, that Turkish bagel with mm. sesame seeds. Mm. And, you know, of course, there are many expensive restaurants and nightclubs, but this is one of the nicest things to do on the Bosporus. Now, there's so much busy traffic on the Bosporus. They've got millions 
of people going to work every day. Of course. And, and there now, are many people who live on the Asian side but work on the European side or vice versa. So many people take commuter ferries or they drive. We have also two bridges over the Bosphorus. So we now have two bridges, lots of ferries. And they are building a third bridge to the north on the Bosphorus. That's also very controversial. There are also protests. Why is it controversial? <laughs> because, you know, uh, there are the northern forests on that part where they are building the bridge. So, you know, many people think that building another bridge won't solve the traffic problem of Turkey. Well, it's when you got 20 million people <laughs> in your city, I don't think yes. a lot of Americans can relate to a city yeah, with 20 million. Definitely. But when you cruise out of Istanbul, you think you've said goodbye to Istanbul and on your cruise ship. And an hour later, you're still looking at Istanbul. Of course. I live in Beyliktusu, which is the city, but it takes me two hours from my house to go to Sultan Ahmed, where the highlight, the museums are located. Two hours. Two hours. You can fly to Rome from Istanbul in two hours, you know. And when there's traffic, it's all, of course, more than that. Luckily for the tourist, we can stay right downtown. Of course, and we yes. Can walk that's to a, most that's of a the perfect sites. choice. Definitely, that's, that's definitely. Now, if I'm on a boat out in the Bosporus and I'm looking at the great city of Istanbul, I see so much history on the skyline. As a tour guide, explain to me what I'm going to be seeing. Uh, when you leave Eminönü, the first thing you will see is the beautiful skyline of the historic city, the mosques, you know, the minarets of Hagia Sophia, which was a church and then converted into a mosque, the six minarets of the Blue Mosque, and then the Suleymaniye Mosque. And then you see the haze, you see these minarets behind the, or in the haze. So it's amazing, actually. And then as you continue, you begin to see the beautiful waterfront mansions, which look like pearls on the Bosphorus, the beautiful wooden mansions. Are from these from an older time then? Most of, them, most of them date back to late 18th, early 19th or late 19th centuries. Oh, okay. And they are regarded to be one of the, among the most expensive residences of the world because it's very prestigious to be able to live on the Bosphorus. You know, in many places you can have a sea view, but in Istanbul, if you live on the Asian side, it's Europe before you. And if you live on the European side, it's Asia before you. And where can you get it else? An intercontinental view. Definitely. It's amazing. And then you go by the Domabachi Palace, which is like the Versailles of Definitely. Uh, the Definitely. It's, it's very opulent. You know, it's very beautiful. Totally European in style. Yarn Turkulu from Istanbul is our guest as she helps us explore the Bosporus. That's the busy and important strait of water that connects the Black Sea with the Sea of Marmara on the way south to the Mediterranean. It forms the historic marine passageway through Istanbul that connects Europe with Asia. And it's our focus for enjoying a perfect view of Istanbul right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Yaren, you mentioned about going up to a little village and, and having a, one of the sesame bread rings or, or a cup of tea. What about fishing? Is there good seafood restaurants along the Bosporus? What would you recommend? In there that are many really very good seafood restaurants all along the Bosporus. There are, you know reasonably priced ones, there are more expensive ones, but you can get the best seafood on the Bosphorus, actually, the freshest. It cannot get any fresher. The freshest seafood I've, yes. I think I've ever purchased was right there in front of the spice market yes. in downtown Istanbul with the boats that are rocking in the waves. And these guys, they just caught these fish. Fish sandwich. Fish sandwich, that's right. And you're buying, and they're, they're cooking it up right there on the boat. Yes. And it's very simple but delicious. And I, even when I was a kid, I was in Istanbul, and there was the boats tied up there, yes. very rustic, and, and today they're fancier. But describe these sandwiches to us. What's it called and how much would it cost? I think the last time I ate it, which was only a month ago, the price was five Turkish lira. And if you have a soft beverage with it, then it must be six or seven. And how many Turkish lira are in a dollar? A dollar is... Around 2.2 Turkish lira. Okay, so about so. $3 for your fish definitely, sandwich and your definitely, soft drink. Definitely, definitely. It cannot get more affordable than that, and it's delicious. And the fun thing is you're sitting right there, yes. surrounded by families and retired people and musicians definitely. and all sorts if of If you are a family of four, you know, by paying 25 Turkish lira, you can have a decent lunch. Now, you might want a dessert nearby, and you could find a lokma. Lokma. It's a kind of a donut with a hole. Uh-huh. It's delicious. And then if I want a drink to wash it all down, where would I go for a good coffee shop? Around the Spice Bazaar, there are really very good coffee places, actually, Turkish coffee places. There are really very little, nice little tea houses. Or maybe after having your fish sandwich, you can just catch a commuter ferry, go to Kadıköy. You will be in Asia in 15 minutes. And you can have your Turkish coffee in Asia, in Kadıköy, in a, a very idea. nice local... You, you could have your fish sandwich yes. in Europe, get on the boat, 
20 in, minutes later, 15 minutes even later. Even 15 minutes, not 20 Ka- minutes. Ka- what's it called? Kadıköy? Kadıköy. It's Kadıköy. a very beautiful, progressive neighborhood on the Asian side of the city. And I've been in a baklava shop. In Kadıköy? In Kadıköy, oh. which has... It seems like the best baklava. Hundred, I, I think I know the baklava. place. Yes. Different, different baklava. It's just a festival of baklava. You like and honey, the marketplace there is just very colorful and it's very local. I love it. So we're talking about going to Istanbul, but we're talking about sailing the Bosporus as part of our Istanbul experience. Yoren, when you think about the rich history of the Bosporus, there's a fascinating a way that the early mariners would hitch a ride on the current in both directions. How did that work? The Black Sea is much higher than the Sea of Marmara and the Aegean. It causes a current on the surface. But the Aegean and the Marmara seas are much more saltier than the Black Sea, so it causes another current down below. Even when you are on the Bosphorus, you can see the currents, the counter currents. So that makes navigating on the Bosphorus very, very difficult, actually. But if you know what you're doing, you can follow one current down and the other current up? Definitely. And if you don't have a steam engine or a modern engine, that could be it's a very smart idea. Definitely, yes. Yaren, let's just wrap it up with one special romantic little excursion. Let's say we want to go somewhere for a balmy summer evening with a good friend. Where would you go on the Bosporus to enjoy all the romance of I that would, beautiful body of water? I would go to Ortaköy, which is the nicest neighborhoods on the Bosporus. Ortaköy. Ortaköy. Okay, and this is just right under the the bridge. Definitely under the first bridge Mm -hmm. and just by the water. And there's a beautiful mosque, which is eclectic in style. It's just very ornate. Very ornate. Kind of almost European-style Baroque or something like that. Most of the mosques which were built after 18th century are European in style in Istanbul. So this is one of the nicest examples of those kind of mosques. And just very near the mosque, there are really very beautiful coffee houses, nice restaurants, very expensive nightclubs. Even if you don't go to a very expensive nightclub, it's fun to see, you know, Turkish people dressed very well to so go to those nightclubs. And, and, and young people on a date young or something people, can go there. Young people, definitely. Older people. What would you do if you were uh, there with some friends? How would you pass the time? I would just go to a nice coffee place. You can smoke hookah. You can try Turkish coffee and just watch the Asian side and the sea and the ships. You know, it's amazing. Sounds like a wonderful ambience and a great way to do something more than just go to the Grand Bazaar and do all the touristy things. Definitely. But to have some fun, play and a little backgammon. socializing with Turkish people. Sounds good. Yaren Turkoglu, teşekkür ederim. şey değil. Did I say You're welcome. Yes, that's right. Very nice. I'll see you next time I'm in Istanbul. Thank you so much. Okay. Bahara uzak Ölüme yakın Kadere yenik Haykırdım Duyuramadım Sana sesimi Next we'll explore the beauty of the Adriatic coast of Croatia. With more than a thousand islands and thousands of miles of coastline, it's consistently named as one of the top up-and-coming destinations to visit in Europe. And we'll explore the world of Impressionist art in and around Paris. We're at 877-333-7425 on Travel with Rick Steves. Cross the Adriatic Sea from Italy, and you'll encounter a beguiling mix of spectacular scenery, Venetian-style architecture, getaway islands that may be hard to pronounce but that you'll remember forever, and culinary traditions that build on what you'll find in Italy and up in the Alps. The Adriatic coast of the former Yugoslavia has been showing up on the top of must-see lists now in affordable getaways of Europe for some time. Our experts to this region are here to tell us why. 
Ben Curtis teaches European politics and history at Seattle University. He guides American tourists around Europe in the summer, and he's written A Traveler's History of Croatia. Marjan Kriskovic takes visitors around the region from his home base in Slovenia, and he knows the coast intimately since he was raised on the Croatian island of Rab. Ben and Marjan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having Thank me. Thank you. Marjan, give us the lay of the land. What is the Adriatic coast? What is the Dalmatian coast? Uh, what are the different parts of the coast? People, for the most part, think of the Croatian coast. There are several distinct parts going up from the big Istrian peninsula, which takes about 10% of the entire surface of Croatia, and the Bay of Kvarna that it closes in, and then uh, most of the rest of the coastline down to Dubrovnik, which is probably the most famous city on the Croatian coastline that is uh, known way beyond Croatia itself, is um, really Dalmatia. So uh, Dalmatia. So it's basically from Venice at the top of the Adriatic Sea. At the end of Italy, we get a, a little bit of... Slovenia, and then we have the Istrian Peninsula, which That's is right. Croatian, right? The Slovenian part is uh, truly tiny. You've got a couple of towns. If you're driving in a car, you sneeze, you miss it. In but there's one nice town. I mean, isn't Pirin the, the yes, resort there? Yes, it is absolutely gorgeous. It's a jewel of uh, Venetian architecture. P-I-R-A-N. Piran, and it's tied right next to a resort town, Porto Roche, Port of Roses. Mm-hmm. And um, and for me, Piran was really... I mean, the resort towns in that part of the world are mostly for local peoples looking for discos and stretches of beaches and this sort of thing, in my uh, estimate. And the old historic port towns have the charm that a lot of Americans are looking for. In fact, if you like Venice... You get a dash of Venice all across the Dalmatian coast. Why is that? Uh, that's uh, because in uh, different parts of the coast, anywhere from uh, 800 to 500 years, most of that coastline was an essential part of the Venetian Republic. And so Venice gave its its main imprint in terms of architecture, food, culture, and every other way. So you see a lot of those winged lions all yes, along the yes. coastline. Hey, uh, Ben Curtis, there's a mix of... Uh, Croatian, Venetian, communist Habsburg heritage. How does that all mix together in your sightseeing on the coastline? Also, how from all of that history comes the charms of the Adriatic coast? Yeah, I would add in another ingredient to that, which is one of the things that makes traveling along the eastern Adriatic coast so wonderful, and that's the Roman ingredient. So you can go back to Roman times. You can see those fantastic Roman columns. You can even see Egyptian sphinxes um, here in the architecture. But It's just this patchwork where you can stand on one town square in some place like Split and see Roman columns. You can see medieval Romanesque churches. You can see the Venetian Gothic windows and the winged lion of St. Mark's. And then Mm. you even get Art Nouveau from the Habsburg times. So you don't have to even move a pace (laughs) and you see it all right there. And you were talking about Split just yeah, then? Yeah, Split is... Headed. Talk about the, the core, what Split, the nucleus from where Split came. Right, yeah. Split is one of my favorite places in the world, really, because it's, like I, I always say, that it's the only place in the world where a city has grown up inside of an old Roman emperor's palace. And Diocletian, the Roman emperor who died in 313 um, CE, he created this palace through his retirement there, and uh, it was this incredibly well-preserved ancient structure. And then after the fall of the Roman Empire... People came and moved in, and they claimed it for their own, and that's how Split grew up into a city. That is really... It's pretty rare that you can have a resort town with the wonderful passeggiata, the stroll, with the palm trees, and then surrounding you are bits of Rome and several other empires. Marjan Kriskovic, uh, you're from Slovenia, but you grew up Mm -hmm. on an island in Croatia, Rob, right? True, and I was always fascinated by those precise components that Ben was talking about, just the layers of history right there, For instance, on the island where I grew up, my uh, father was from the island of Rab, and that's where I finished both elementary and high school. My father would have vineyards and olive groves, and some of those olive trees would go back uh, almost a thousand years. Thousand-year-old olive trees. That's right. Imagine the history they've seen. Precisely, and they were always tended by all those different people, all those different civilizations, and when you pick those olives and you tend to that tree... That represents a a direct living link to all those civilizations that inhabited that same space. Oh, man. And that's what's really inspirational to me, is to meet people like you, whose families have been there for centuries, and you know the ground, you know the trees, you know the mountains, you know the stories, you know the wars, and you know the festivals. This is something just so exciting about traveling, where you mix the natural wonders and the historic wonders all together, and it's done so well on the Dalmatian coast or the Adriatic coast, uh, mostly along the coastline of Croatia. True. True. Routes go a long way in Europe, yes. (laughs) This is Travel with Rick Steves, and as we do every week, we're spending an hour in other lands, learning more about cultures so we can become citizens of the planet and enjoy our travels smarter. 
Today we're joined by Marjan Kriskovic and Ben Curtis. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Kathy's calling in from Toronto in Ontario. Kathy, thanks for your call. Oh, you're welcome. We're planning on going to Croatia. We're renting a car, and we're going to make our way towards the coast, starting in Split. And then we'd like to do some island hopping. And I was wondering what islands would you suggest and uh, for how long? Marion, what about islands? Because uh, you grew up on an island, and, and uh, right. there's some famous islands, uh, but how can people sort through the, the tourist traps and so well, on? Croatia has more than a 1,000 islands to choose from, and there are less than half a dozen of the really famous one and touristy ones. So in one way, uh, going from Split, that would be definitely the island of uh, Hvar, which is uh, featured in so many top 10 islands of the world lists uh, and so on nowadays in different travel magazines. Brač is very uh, accessible from there. But if you're really not into crowds in high summer, you might consider Vis, which is a slightly longer journey with a ferry boat, or further down south, um, Mljet. How do you spell Vis? Vis, V-I-S. And the last one you mentioned? Mljet, M-L-J-E-T. M-L-J-E-T. And then you also mentioned Havar, H-V-A-R. Now, this is the one that's easy to get to because it's a, a quick hop on the ferry from Split, where almost everybody will go, and it's a nice stop between Split and Dubrovnik. Mm-hmm. Describe the, um, the ritzy ambience, the Croatian Riviera feel, the, the yachts stern tied to the harbor and so on that you'd find in Havar. Well, the backdrop for all of this is, of course, this beautiful historic city, which goes back many centuries, uh, again, with the layers of architecture and history that we talked about earlier, it started drawing with its uh, mild climate that's year-round. It's been recognized for centuries, and in the past it uh, earned the nickname the Austrian Madeira when it was still part of the Austrian coastline. Uh, and so that's been recognized by a lot of the uh, rich and famous. It uh, was just enough away from the coastline to be bypassed by the really big resort development, even though there's no shortage of uh, that. And so nowadays it tends to be targeted by many of the who's who uh, lists of uh, the rich and famous of the world with their big yachts who tend to be chased by the paparazzi and that, of course, uh, brings Hvar into all the headlines. There's some good ideas for you, Kathy. Thank you very much. Thanks for your call. You're welcome. Marcia's on the line in Spokane, Washington. Marcia, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. I actually had a comment about uh, Korchula. Oh, yeah. The island of Korchula. We were there a couple of summers ago, and we rented a scooter for the day and uh, just took off across the island and really got away from everything. We visited a couple of, I think, three different beaches. We just kind of went beach hopping and um, found this incredible little road down. It was a very, very steep road. In fact, our scooter almost didn't make it back up. I thought we were going to have to get off and push, but um, it was just an awesome day of, of just pure exploring. No agenda, no map, no nothing. Now, you did something really, really cool. You went to the most touristy town, I think, on the coast, Korchula, and it's delightful. It's like a teeny pint-sized Venice, but overrun with tourists. You enjoy that, of course, but you rent a motorbike or a little motor scooter, and then you go exploring on your own, and within a mile, I would imagine you're completely away from all the tourist crowds. Oh, yeah, it was great. We, I don't think we saw any tourists hey. all day long. Ben, when you're traveling, uh, talk a little bit about how you can turn a touristy place into an untouristy place, and also how a lot of these towns have their historic old town, which has all the, the kind of charm, and then kind of a modern, sprawling place, which might have more facilities but less character. Right, yeah, I think it's a great idea, as charming as the old town can be, to get out of them, and it's easy to do because, yeah, you can rent a scooter. Another thing that I love to do is it's pretty easy to rent just a little boat for the day, a little motorboat, ah. and you can take it out. Here's what I like to do. You go to the, the market in the morning, you get yourself a picnic lunch, then you hop in the boat, and you spend the entire day not island hopping, but islet hopping. And all around Croatia, there's, you know, as Marjan said, there's over a thousand islands, little rocky outcroppings, little bigger places. By Cortula, there's a nice little island which has an old Franciscan monastery on it. And you go and you, like, swim off your boat and claim the island, and you plant your flag, and that's your island for 45 minutes. Your and then own you move on. islet in the middle of the Dalmatian coast. It's like you're exactly. a jet setter. You've got your own <laughs> special place. <laughs> your own but bring your own water. <laughs> yeah, yeah. bring your own, wild, <laughs> your own water and your own parachute with your own uh, cured ham and make yourself a great picnic. So that's a fantastic way to spend a day on the Croatian coast uh, away from the crowds. And then the modern areas, as you mentioned, you know, they might not have their charm, but... Uh, that's where you'll actually see more locals, that that's where the locals will go to the market. And that's where you should go find the fish market, the the bakery, the uh, supermarket, and maybe pick up some picnic supplies mm-hmm. in that kind of part of town. Marcia, did you picnic or did you eat at little restaurants? Oh, no, we picnicked. We had a 
picnic. We stopped and had a drink at a little place, but uh, mostly picnic. What was the language barrier? How's your Croatian? Well, my Croatian is very poor, but <laughs> we had no issue. It's it's like English has become really anybody that wants to serve tourists speaks English. Yeah, and it's an interesting thing how Yugoslavia has come out of its. Uh, terrible civil war just a couple decades ago, and today it, it, it feels like uh, people are getting it together okay, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we didn't have any issues at no all. No issue like that. Great. Thanks, Marcia, for your tips. Thank you. Bye now. Marianne Kriskovic and Ben Curtis are our guides to the easy-to-love Adriatic coast of Croatia and a little bit of Slovenia. And you can join us on Travel with Rick Steves at 877-333-7425. Gerilyn's on the line in Watsonville, California. Hi, Gerilyn. Do you have any tips for our listeners? Hi, I just wanted to recommend a small place that we discovered about an hour south of Split called Boschka Voda. It's right on the water with a huge backdrop of, of mountains, so you have to walk. We, we took the bus because we were tired of driving on the, the roads there. So we took the bus from uh, Dubrovnik and came up the coast and landed in Boschka Voda. We stayed in a little pension just right on practically on the beach. There was a little sidewalk uh, cafe that, that was a part of the pension uh, right outside and then a small street and then a beautiful, charming little harbor that you could just walk around and look at all the boats. It just felt like being at home at this place. Sounds and like it a- was mainly visited by Croatians, too. There were, I don't know if I ever heard much English at all, hardly ever. I well, think let, let's, let's hear from our Croatian uh, guide about Baska Voda. What does Baska Voda mean? Uh, Baska Voda means uh, the water of, uh, of Baska. Um, uh-huh. And this is uh, one of the small towns yeah, just south of Split, and it's part of the Makarska Riviera, which is the, the closer, bigger town in that region. And that's, in fact, where the Croatian Tourist Board will go to make photographs of some of the nicest beaches ah. in Croatia, beautiful, pebbly beaches and uh, the azure water. And often people wonder, where is that? So that's places like uh, Bashka Voda, and there are lots of little towns like that just to the south. Some have uh, more tourist facilities, some less, so um, one can always find the right spot for themselves, just like with the islands. There are the really crowded ones, and they're the ones that have... Um, no traffic, no cars, and one can easily get away and truly experience the Mediterranean as it once was. Gerilyn, you found the cover girl beach town of the Croatian tourist board. We did. You know, we just felt so at home there, even though, you know, we were surrounded by people that were speaking a different language, although I must say we were so impressed with the English when we visited Croatia. Oh, yeah. Just it was no problem. Well, you know, it is sort of counterintuitive, but the countries that have a um, smaller number of people speaking their language, like Croatians compared to Italians or Germans or French, will be more likely to speak English in a lot of cases. So whereas you might expect to find a language barrier in Bosnia or Croatia or Slovenia or Latvia, those kind of places are where well-educated young people are very likely to speak English, and it makes it easy for us travelers. Yes, it really does. And and the people were just really friendly. I don't know. I, I There's a few places I've been where I just felt so at home. We would, you know, just walk across the street to one beach or we'd walk up the other way and pass several beaches. You could even watch walk to the next town along the beach. And then when it came time to go to a restaurant, uh, what was the language barrier like and what was the food like? Well, <laughs> this was the great thing about this place. It was called Pension Palak. P-A-L-A-C. And they included a very, very generous breakfast that you'd just go out and sit on the sidewalk cafe there and have whatever you wanted, really, from eggs and yogurt and toast and bacon and eggs, whatever you wanted. And then for 10 euros extra, you'd get a three-course dinner also. (laughs) Whoa. 10 yeah, euro, uh, so it's like $14 for a I mean, dinner. I remember the shrimp risotto that we had was excellent, and it was so much that we had it for lunch the next day as well. That sounds like a winner. Gerilyn, thanks for your call. Thank you. Happy travels. Bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been exploring the Adriatic coastline of Croatia. Talk about an undiscovered compared to the French and the Italian and the Spanish coastline. This is really an exciting place to check out, and our callers have been giving these wonderful little ad-lib, impromptu bits of offbeat joy that they find in their travels. One of the great things for me when I'm traveling on the Adriatic coastline are the romantic bars that you can find, uh, just for a a nice glass of wine as the sun's going down, and and you get sort of 
you become part of the scene. And uh, we've been joined by Ben Curtis and Marjan Kriskovic. And I'd like to sum up, you guys, with just your favorite bar scene or your favorite romantic sunset where you can enjoy a, a drink and be right there thoroughly anchored in a beautiful way on the Adriatic coastline. Ben? Well, the, the highlight recommendation, I guess, for anybody, if you go to Dubrovnik, there's these two little bars on the rocks outside the walls of Dubrovnik. And that will be, if you hit it at sunset, I mean, everybody tries to do it at sunset, right? But if you hit it there, you have a glass of wine, of local wine, of a cocktail, whatever you want. And there's one of the most magnificent cities in all the Mediterranean at your back. And there is the fantastically, beautifully blue Adriatic at your front and the sunset just popping mm. down the water. And that mm. is something you'll never forget. And with the cruise ships going away into mm-hmm. the sunset, you're also thinking, there goes 5,000 obnoxious exactly. tourists, and I got the magic of Dubrovnik all to myself. Exactly. Is that the Buzo bar? Exactly. Oh. Yeah, hole in the wall. The bu- yeah. That means literally the hole in the yeah. wall. And it is a hole in the medieval wall that yeah. you go through. And then they've got this uh, wonderful, funky, little, youthful crew that serves drinks to people, having that magical, romantic moment. Marianne, what, what is a good bar that you'd like to talk about? Oh, gosh, there's so many. Almost every one of those beautiful little coast town has one. Uh, one that uh, comes to mind is up north in the um, the Istrian Peninsula. One of the most beautiful towns on the um, coastline is Rovin there. And the Valentino Bar, where cocktails are served. Again, sunset would be the preferred time, uh, needless to say. And the cocktails are served on those white limestone rocks that accumulated the heat from the sun for all day. And they're warming you just as you... Uh, um, the sun sets over the tiny little island group in front of this beautiful historical town. They, they give you a pillow, yes. and you can settle it into the rocks the way you like, and they actually That's have right. candelabra with candles on them, flickering in, in the wind of the harbor, and there you are with your Croatian friends. That's right. It's just about as down. romantic as it gets. And that's the Valentino Bar in the town of Rovin, R-O-V-I-J-N, which I think is the best stop for me between Venice and Dubrovnik. Marian Kriskovic and Ben Curtis, thanks so much for sharing with us your expertise on this beautiful stretch of Mediterranean coastline, the Adriatic coast. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. Another way to find yourself in the middle of a beautiful place is to enjoy the setting and the atmosphere that a masterful Impressionist painting conveys. Up next on Travel with Rick Steves, a guide to Impressionism in Paris promises to shed a different kind of light on places where great artists worked in France just a little over a hundred years ago. And it ought to help you find a new delight in viewing the Impressionist art at your favorite museum. We're at 877-333-7425 or by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. At first, it was too radical for most back in the late 19th century. But a group of artists in Paris kept experimenting with capturing the vagaries of light and shadow on their canvases and making the outdoors their studio. Today, we call the effects of their short brushstrokes and combining colors Impressionism. And what better place to enjoy their masterpieces than where these artists live? Guiding us right now on Travel with Rick Steves to the top places for viewing Impressionist art up close in and around Paris is Elizabeth Van Hest. Elizabeth visited Paris from her home in the Netherlands more than 40 years ago. She liked it so much, she's made Paris her home ever since. Elizabeth, bonjour. Thank you. First of all, Elizabeth, how do you define Impressionism? If you think of Impressionism, it is amazing because everybody knows the world. It was, in fact, uh, never introduced by the painters themselves or art specialists. No, it was, in fact, a negative criticism. Because, you know, when the painters who started to paint in the open air and use a different kind of techniques, not a composition anymore, not mixing your colors on your palette, Mm -hmm. no, they started to paint directly on the canvas And you, as a spectator, you are going to mix the colors. So they would dab two colors together next to each other on the canvas, and it would mix between the canvas and your eyes, and they wouldn't mix it on their palette. Yes. And that gives it a more vibrancy. Exactly. And uh, so 
these painters, you know, they could only become well-known through the official exhibitions. There were no art galleries in those days. So since so many painters have been refused on those official exhibitions in the Salon, in the Louvre, or in yeah. the Luxembourg uh, Palace, well, they decided to organize their exhibition themselves. And they did that in a place owned by a photographer called Nada. It was in the year 1874. And, of course, all these young painters, they had to uh, display their artwork. And Monet, he took one of his paintings that he had painted in the harbor of Le Havre, where he grew up. And he gave it quickly a title saying, Impression Soleil Levant, Impression Sunrise. Hmm. And there an art critic came inside and said, Ha, 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 look at that. That is called Impressionism. And this word became well known, although the painters themselves they had called uh, themselves uh, independent. Because they were stepping away from the conservative salon, the, 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 the mainstream, and they were sort of rebels. And then the yes. critics said, it's just a scant impression, just a, as a, an insult. But yes. they, they embraced it, and then yes. it was impressionism. Exactly. And it's a beautiful thing, because we can paint reality beautifully by this point, and now we're going beyond that, getting impressions of the sun and the shadows and the colors exactly. dappled in the shade. Yes. And you find that when you're in Paris. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're delving into a very important art form, Impressionism. And that was really the last time it seems all of European artists were together in one movement. Since then, it's busted apart in many fragmented ways. But in the 1880s and in that era, we've got amazing things happening in Paris. Now, if you're going to go to Paris, Elizabeth, and you want to see the best of the Impressionists, not, I'm not talking about contemporary exhibits because that comes and goes a lot, but just the, the very basic, most important museums for this, what would your top four or five sites be? Of course, you go first to the Orsay Museum. Mm -hmm. That is the largest collection, what was previous the Jeu de Paume. Mm -hmm. But since the old railway station has been transformed into the museum, of course, this is, well, paradise for all those who like Impressionism. So that's the Orsay Gallery, the former big train station right along the Seine River, which is now turned into the great museum collecting all the collections of post-Louvre art. The Louvre yeah. goes until about 1850 or something, and then after that we see it now together in the Orsay. Exactly. And you see work until the beginning of the 20th century, so mm -hmm. also post-Impressionism. And um, then you shouldn't miss, of course, the Orangerie. You know, they've completely renovated the Orangerie. And now the water lilies by Monet, who were donated by the great artists to France and the French after the First World War as a gift of peace. Well, if you go there inside, you find peace in yourself. Now, this is the Orangerie. It was a, a place where they kept the orange trees originally for the palace associated yes. with the Louvre. Yes. And the Jeu de Palme, right across the park, was a tennis court, I think. Yes. And then the new purpose is to contain art. And I understand Monet actually designed the, the way his water lilies would be situated yes, there. Yes, but he never saw it himself. He wanted it to be shown to the public ah. after his death. Wow. Because he was aware of the fact that the times had changed and, you know, after the First World War, art will change very much. Now, if you want to see more of Monet's great paintings in Paris, what's another gallery you would uh, go to? I would say uh, go to Marmottan. Don't miss Marmottan Museum. That is where the son of Monet donated all the artwork that was still in Giverny. Uh -huh. As you see, um, he had one son who inherited. Uh, when the son died, Michel, he donated it to the Marmottan Museum. And it's a beautiful uh, mansion also on the edge yes. of Paris, the Marmottan Museum, M-A-R-M-A-T-T-A-N. We often think of Impressionism as paint on canvas, but it is so intimately entwined with the treatment of light and how we perceive things that sculpture, carving marble, can also be Impressionist. If we sure. want to get a dose of that, what should we do? Yes. Well, then you should go and miss uh, the Rodin Museum. It uh, is the place where Rodin had his last studio, the last years of his life, and suddenly the idea came up to donate his artwork to the state so that they could transform that In mansion. In his studio. And yes. you can see right where Rodin, the great sculptor, and he happened to be working at the same time as Monet and, and these yes, great Impressionists. they were painters. nearly born on the same day, only two days. Uh, Is that right? Yes. Now, yes. you know, we, uh, we're all tied into a certain medium when we're thinking about art, but but music is part of this also. Yes. Is it any coincidence that to me some music feels impressionistic? Well, you should listen to Claude Debussy. 
for instance. Was he living and uh, working in the same decade? Yes. So there you go. A yeah. little later, but, but yes. But still impressionist in style. Yes, personally. Uh, when I go to the Orangerie and I see all these water lily paintings around me, I just feel like all the colors together are like tones of the music. Elizabeth Ann Hest is our guide to the Impressionist art in and around Paris right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And you can keep the conversation going in our online discussion forum. That's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Frank's calling in from Newport Ritchie in Florida. Frank, thanks for your call. Yes, you mentioned, uh, I think, with the Musée Marmottin, and you mentioned the Musée d'Orsay, and you mentioned the Orangerie. Are there any other museums in Paris that uh, feature Impressionism or art from Impressionism or even post-Impressionism? You know, those are the big three. That's yes, the lion's yes. share of it. And I would say until you've seen those three, I wouldn't worry about any others unless there's a big temporary exhibit. But, Elizabeth, I think big news is after, what, five years of, of being closed, the Picasso Museum is opening up again. Oh, yes, that's a big thing. We have to wait five years now. And, and, and uh, what do we find in the Picasso Museum in Paris? Well, of course, you have the collection that was donated by the uh, inheritance of uh, Picasso. Mm-hmm. It is doubled in surface since uh, the renovation, so there are more rooms to visit, and it is displayed in a different way. This is truly big news on the art oh, scene. Yes. You oh, see yes. the art from Picasso's youth in Barcelona, and there's a nice Picasso mu- museum in Antibes, but in Paris, then, Picasso Museum, newly renovated, twice as big, and that's going to be probably the best collection uh, for Picasso yeah. anywhere in Europe. And it is uh, located in a beautiful mansion of the 17th century, Uh, which uh, I think uh, Picasso would have highly appreciated because he often chose uh, very old castles uh, to work in. Frank, thanks for your call. Okay, thanks very much. Yes, bye now. Kristen's on the phone in Delray Beach, Florida. Kristen, thanks for your call. Thanks, it's great to be able to talk to you. Um, I just want to say how much I enjoyed seeing the Marmottin Museum last May, and I am a great fan of Monet. And to be able to see the painting that he did, which inspired the term Impressionism, was very exciting. It is fun to see that what I think fairly can be called the first Impressionist painting, mm-hmm. and to mm-hmm. think of the fun that these guys were just, you know, perturbing all of the uh, mainstream right. artists, and then the winners were the rebels who broke away from the salon and started their own movement. And, of course, it was born in Paris, and we can see the great sights there. And, Kristen, wasn't it fun getting out to the Marmottin Museum? It really was. And um, we were renting an apartment for a couple of weeks, and we just were going back again this year. (laughs) We really felt we didn't see it all. I enjoyed an impressionist uh, experience just going through the park outside of the Marmottin to see the kids on the carousel there and just think this is the same sort of delightful scene that would have inspired an impressionist painter back in the 1880s. Kristen, thanks for your call. Yeah, thanks. Nice to talk to you. Bye. You too. Joanne's calling in from Tustin, California. Hi, it's great to be on. Uh, I'm a big Monet fan. And when I was in Paris, I wanted to go visit Monet's garden in Giverny. And it was a bit of far away, having to take train and the bus and walking there, standing in line. But when I stepped into that garden, it was just amazing. I saw just a parts of his paintings everywhere in his garden. And it's, it, it is an amazing experience, and let's make sure our listeners know what you're talking about here, uh, Joanne. It's Giverny, and that is G-I-V-E-R-N-Y. I believe it's about 50 miles west of Paris, and you get there by train. You go to a, a town called Vernon, V-E-R-N-O-N, and then that's just a few miles from uh, Giverny, and you make your way from there. But uh, this is the beautiful sort of farmhouse that Monet spent his last 40 years, and he created his pastoral paradise with a pond and floating lilies and weeping willow trees and the Japanese bridge. And when you walk through there, you can just imagine this artistic genius being in, in his glory there and actually seeing his paintings being coming together uh, on the walls of his studio. Elizabeth, tell us about Giverny a little bit. Every time I'm, I'm visiting Giverny, I feel like if I'm walking through one of his paintings. And when I'm in the Orangerie, I see his garden. It's so much linked, and it's always a pleasure. Don't say if you 
pick a, a day when it is raining that is not interesting. It is. And this is a beautiful thing about Impressionism. Yes. You could paint a different painting standing on the same spot, looking at the same garden at different times of day and in different weather, and from an Impressionist's point of view, they're completely different because the physical substance is just the rack upon which the colors and the light is, is hanging. Yeah, and that's why Monet picked out so many series, mm-hmm. series of haystacks, series of poplars, series of the Cathedral of Rouen, but then the series, of course, of his water lilies. Mm. About 30 years he will dedicate his life to water lilies paintings, and the last, let's say, 10 or 15 years, he will work on these huge canvases that this was his, this was his opus magnum, really, yes. this, uh, this water lilies. Joanne, thanks for your call, and thanks for reminding us about Giverny. Is it Giverny? Giverny. Giverny. Thank you, Joanne. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth, when we're talking about Giverny and we're talking about uh, the orangerie to see the water lilies, what would you see? F- I mean, you, you need to see both of them. Is it better to go to the garden first and then see the paintings? Well, it doesn't e- matter. Either way. E- either yeah, way. Either but I think way. it's important to see yes. both. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Let's, you know, we've been talking about Impressionism and how Paris inspired these great artists, and they were so revolutionary. Today, as travelers in the 21st century, in this great city of Paris, how would you walk around and just get an Impressionistic joy out of what you see actually today in real life? Well, first of all, you can go to the Tuileries Gardens, painted so often by Sisley, Pizarro, and Monet that I consider as the real Impressionist. Uh, you sit along the River Seine, and you see the, the sun reflected in the water, and you are with Monet, who said, when I look at that, I close my eyes, and what remains in my mind, I reflect it on my canvas, and it will be an artwork, it will be a painting. Of course, you go to Montmartre, there's less, very little left from the original Montmartre, how the painters have known it. But there is still a wine garden. There are two windmills, wooden windmills, that remind you of the time of the Impressionists. Mm-hmm. And then I think I would take you to the Bois de Boulogne, because that, that is the whole period of Napoleon III, you know. Uh, you can still rent a, b- a little boat, a little barge, and you row exactly like in the paintings of the Impressionists. And that's the Grand Park on just on the edge of Paris, where yes. you can really enjoy that sort it's of love of life that the Impressionists so beautifully captured yes. on canvas. Of course, you, you should also go behind the Saint-Lazare railway station. People like, uh, painters like Caillebotte, mm-hmm. they were very impressed by the new constructions. Don't forget that Impressionism is also the Paris of Napoleon III. Creation. So this is part of the new industrial age, yes. and they were capturing the wonder exactly. of that age as well. And you know, Monet went to Saint-Lazare railway mm. station. He even said to the chief in the, in the train station, stop that train, I have to paint it. Elizabeth Van Hest, you're inspiring us all to go back to Paris with a little bit different eyes so we can appreciate the impressionist overlay of that beautiful city. Thank you very much for sharing. It was a pleasure. Au revoir. Thank you. Some trips into rural France take you into small towns that seem to be nearly empty as the younger generation relocates to Paris or other big cities looking for work. But in at least one region of France, older travelers, often retirees, and those with the means to have a second home are breathing new life into the countryside. British author Graham Robb joined us a couple months ago to talk about the trailblazing book he wrote called The Discovery of France. He wrote it after researching the entire country for four years and 14,000 miles on a bicycle. Here's an extra bit from our interview with him that I think you'll find interesting. Graham explains how an influx of his compatriots from Britain are reviving a number of small towns in the southwest of France. I understand in much of France, even if it's a proud uh, region with a long history, there's people, young generation, moving into the big cities to find jobs, and it's almost leaving small towns depopulated to the point where the government is subsidizing young people who would agree to stay and, and run the little shop and, and keep the city basically uh, vibrant enough to, uh, to stay alive. Did you encounter that in your travels? Yes, you do see that a lot. Some villages and even small towns are partly boarded up, and you can see houses just being allowed to crumble. And very often, if the houses have been restored, uh, it's because English people, especially people from the south of England, have Mm. gone and and bought a house. And you would think that the French, in some parts, would be much more hostile to the old traditional enemy, England. Mm. Uh, But often they're, they're glad that at least someone has come to keep the place up 
farms are getting bigger and bigger. They're bought up by big concerns. It's harder and harder to make a living. And the high-speed train is a particular thorn in, in the flesh of a lot of people in rural parts of France because they feel it's allowing everyone to bypass their region and is sucking all the life out of the That's province. That's another interesting development. You've got this bullet trains that make the Riviera and the coast of Normandy just an easy day-trip distance from London. You've got the economy of scale that's threatening small farms. And you've got uh, English people coming in for a charming little spot where they can get their foie gras. <laughs> uh, it's just, it's, yeah. it's an amazing puzzle, isn't it? And when you uh, tour it by bike, maybe the pieces of the puzzle come together a little better. Yes, I think they do. And uh, one thing I have noticed, because it, biking makes it very easy to talk to people, is that some parts that were settled by the English a uh, generation or two ago have developed a kind of patois that's a sort of franglais that sounds like badly spoken French, but it's almost become mm -hmm. a, a dialect in its own right. <laughs> You're talking about where there'd be a, a, a large number of English expats that are settling in? Yes, and local people get so used to hearing their version of French that it begins to spread to the, the natives' language too. Is the Dordogne an area where there's a particular uh, lot of English people? Yes. What there is it about the Dordogne? The English, English love to go to the Dordogne. It's got a good climate, and it's very varied, and uh, it's a limestone region, which is good building stone. And it's kind of getting away from it all, too, because it's not on a major train line, or, or it's, uh, it feels a little more off the beaten path, maybe. Yes, it is quite remote. And funnily enough, the Dordogne was a target about a century ago for a lot of people in Brittany who wanted to move further south. And it's thought they really just liked the sound of the name. It sounded lovely, Dordogne. Yeah. It sounded like the, you know, <laughs> the promised land. Graham Robb, author of The Discovery of France. Merci beaucoup. You're very welcome, Rick. It's my pleasure. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilder at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. We get technical help from Andrew Wakeling and Kate Mulhern-Graham. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to Aaron Harding for helping us out this week. You'll find more to each week's show in the radio section of ricksteves.com. That's where you can listen again whenever you like. This week we also have a feature about Rick encountering a Klappa singing chorus in Croatia. And we'll look for you again next week with more travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. Along those same lines, Europe 101, History and Art for the Traveler, is a must-read for anyone who appreciates Europe's rich history and great art. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.